0: All right, good morning again. I'm glad to be here this morning. If you would, open with me to Mark chapter 15. We're getting toward the end of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, uh, next week will be our final sermon over the Gospel of Mark. It's been a long time coming, but we're finally here at the end of the Gospel. Today we're going to look at verses 33-33 forty-one. actually we may have a couple more sermons after next week it may not be the last one but we will get to the resurrection next week so that's good Mark chapter 15 uh, we're looking at verses 33 through 41 uh, today uh, as I was thinking through this I was reminded of uh, being a kid growing up, and um, I'm sure you can relate to this type of thing, but it would happen a lot. My brother or sister, they're the ones that always started it, of course, uh, but they would always do something or say something, and then my reaction would be to say something back or do something back, right? Like I remember my sister, I've got a sister who is a year and a half older than me. My brother and I shared a bedroom growing up, and then my sister had her own bedroom, um, and so we would get in fights, but instead of like fist fights or even instead of, uh, instead of like vocal calling each other names and things like that, she would come into my room and she would get something, uh, like I had a, you know, have a basket of stuff on a shelf, or, or she would get something and just dump it out in my floor of my room. And so I would go to her room and I would get something and dump it out in her floor. And she would come back to my room and she would get something and dump it out. And, and we'd just go back and forth like that until finally both of our rooms are just complete messes and we'd have to spend the whole rest of the day cleaning up our rooms trying to get back at each other, right? And, and of course, if my mom found out about this, or my dad, if they were home and they found out about it, and they came and, and, and tried to get on me for it, my response always was, well, she did it first, right? Or if my brother and I were fighting, he did it first, right? And, and what's the response that my mom would always give me or my dad would always give me? If I said they did it first, they would always say, well, two wrongs don't make a right, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. I found myself at work the other night, uh, at, at the boys' home where I work saying that to one of the kids there. He was, uh, I was getting on him for something and he said, well, the other, other kids started and I said, yeah, but two wrongs don't make a right. And I, and I thought of that. Well, in our, in our passage this morning in, in, uh, in these verses, we don't have two wrongs making a right, but we do have two wrongs and a right. We do have two wrongs and a right. And so let's read these, these verses and then I'll tell you what I'm talking about and we'll, and we'll look at it in, in more detail. Starting in Verse 33. Mark writes, and, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And, and by the way, just to kind of clarify, this is the sixth hour the ninth hour. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. So that's the time frame we're talking about here. So when, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema ma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we confess that it is it's good for us, and God, we thank you for this particular word. And God, what a what a weighty what a weighty subject, what a weighty topic to be thinking about, to be reading, to be considering, and and God, what a weighty topic, what a weighty subject to be preaching on this morning—the death of our Savior, the death of our. King, the death of our Lord, the death of our Master. Father, I pray this morning that your word would be clear. God, I got to pray that your gospel would, would be powerful. God, I got to pray your Holy Spirit will be here working through me and, and, and in our hearts this morning. God, I got to pray that your son Jesus will be honored and glorified here among us. That we thank you for him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So I'm going to give you two wrongs and a, and a right this morning. And so first of all, there's three points. The first point is that they had a wrong understanding. They had a wrong understanding. The second point is they had a wrong motivation. They had a wrong motivation. And then the third point, they had a right realization. A right realization. So a wrong understanding, a wrong motivation— and then a right understanding. We're talking here about the final three hours of Jesus' life. As I said, we're talking about from noon to three p.m. The, the Jewish day began at 6 a.m. That was the first hour. And so the uh, the the sixth hour would be noon, the ninth hour would be would be three p.m. This this is the final three hours of Jesus' life, and, and yet we see, we find that the people they still don't understand what he had come to do. They still did not understand how he was going to accomplish what he came to do. We hear him cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani. He's quoting there from Psalm 22. And when he cries out, the people misunderstood what he was saying. Now, we can give them maybe cut them a little bit of slack. Maybe they were Romans. We know that the, the guards that were there were Romans. The centurion at the end of the passage that we'll talk about here uh, in a little bit, he was, he was a Roman, of course, and there were other Romans around. But we also know there were some Jewish people around, right? Um, he mentions the ladies that were there, the, the, the Marys that were there, and he says there were other women that had followed Jesus through Jerusalem. So we know that there are some other uh, Hebrew people there uh, as well, and yet they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He, he cries out this phrase, quoting Psalm 22. Um, he's saying it in, in, uh, in, in Aramaic. And, and so the Roman people didn't understand what he was saying. They didn't speak Aramaic. And maybe some of these Jewish people didn't understand uh, exactly what he was saying uh, either. And, and yet he cries out. And, and so they misunderstand him. And they, and they think he's crying for Elijah. Eloi, Elijah, Elihoi. Is, is how you would say that in Hebrew, and so it sounds kind of the same. L-O-E. Um and, and so they 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 hear this word that sounds sort of like Elijah. So they think he must be calling for uh, he must be calling for Elijah. But m- much more than, than than misunderstanding what he was saying, the words he was saying, much more than misunderstanding uh, who he was calling for, they misunderstood what he was doing. They they misunderstood the significance of what was happening. They didn't understand. the the purpose of the cross. They they didn't know how the cross worked, so to speak. They didn't understand what Jesus was 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 doing. They were thinking that this prophet Elijah would return to the earth before the Messiah showed up. If you remember back to chapter nine when when Jesus is with the uh, chapter eight when Jesus is with the disciples there and he asked him, He says, Who do people say that I am? They remember their response. One of them says, well some people say that you're Elijah or one of the other prophets, right? They had this idea in their, in their mind that before the Messiah would come, the prophet Elijah was going to come back. If you remember anything about Elijah, you remember that he never died. And there's the Old Testament passage where he's walking with his protege, Elisha, and this fiery chariot comes down with fiery horses, and it swoops down and picks up Elijah and carries him off into, into heaven, into God's presence. And, and so the Jewish people had this, had this idea, had this thought that before the Messiah would come, the prophet Elijah was going to come back first. And so when they hear Jesus crying out on the cross, Eloi, Elohim, my God, my God, they misunderstand that to be Elijah and they think maybe he really is the Messiah because he's calling for Elijah. And so maybe Elijah is going to come and, and when Elijah comes that would show that, that Jesus really is the Messiah that he had, that he had claimed to be. The problem with that is that they're still thinking of the Messiah, they're, they're still thinking of, of Jesus in terms of, a, of a, a, a conquering king or a royal conqueror who, who's gonna come and, and he's gonna lead this rebellion against the, the Roman Empire that's, that's kind of oppressing them right now and he's gonna restore the kingdom to Israel. That, that's still their, their mentality, They're thinking of what the Messiah is gonna do and they, they, they couldn't imagine that a Messiah, a Messiah was gonna come who was gonna die and, and it looked like Jesus was about to die. And so their thoughts were, well, maybe he wasn't really the Messiah. And, and then he cries out, my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi. And they think, oh, well, maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he's calling Elijah. And maybe Elijah's going to come and, 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 and if he really is the son of God, then, then, then he's going to prove it. Remember, in fact, this is what the, what the thief beside him had said, right? If you really are the son of God, let him come down off the cross and save us, right? It says, won't you save yourself and and, save us. and they were, they were thinking that, that this would finally be the moment when Jesus would prove who he is. This would finally be the moment when Jesus is about to show his power and, and come down from the cross and prove that he really was who he claimed to be. They thought he was crying for Elijah. They thought this was the beginning of kind of the last play of his life before he finally reestablished the, the kingdom. They couldn't understand that the cross was actually a display of Jesus' weakness. They were still thinking the Messiah was somehow going to be this powerful king that was going to come and do these things, but the cross actually was a display of Jesus' weakness. And, 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 and they couldn't understand that through that very weakness, the king would be exalted. And through that very weakness, the kingdom would eventually be established. They had this misunderstanding, not only of what Jesus was saying, but they had this misunderstanding of what Jesus was doing, what he was accomplishing, what the cross, how the cross worked. And as I was thinking about that that this week, I wonder how many of us have a uh, misunderstanding uh, about how the cross works. I wonder how many of us misunderstand exactly what the cross is, is doing. We talk a lot about Jesus dying for us and, and, and perhaps, hopefully, you've even told someone before that Jesus died for for them. But I wonder if we really understand exactly what that means and exactly what he did when he died for us. Throughout history, d- different people have, have, have died as martyrs. Um, some of them have, have even been crucified, have died the same way that Jesus died, as a martyr for believing the same things that That Jesus believed and for preaching the same things that Jesus preached? What is it about Jesus' crucifixion that somehow affects our salvation when those others didn't? How is it, what is it about Jesus dying on the cross that unites us to God where when other people died on the cross it didn't unite us to God? What exactly is Jesus doing and how is it that the cross doesn't? In, 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 in history, people have had different, different ways of answering that question. People have sought to answer the question of, uh, of how does the cross work in different ways. Some people have, have, have said that they suggested that, that what Jesus is really doing on the cross, um, when he's suffering all of these beatings before the cross, he's suffering this humiliation, when he's on the cross dying. Some people say that, that what he's really doing is he's, he's just trying to show us how much God loves us. He wants us to see in his, in his death for us how much God loves us. And, and make no mistake, one of the things that the last couple of chapters of Mark's gospel is showing us is the immense grandeur of God's love. One thing Jesus is doing on the cross is showing us how much God loves us. That, that's true. Both the Father sending his only son to die for us, also the son's willingness to come and to suffer and to be humiliated in this way and, and, and to and to die for us, that speaks volumes to us or it ought to speak volumes to us of how much God God loves us. Even talking about that might make you think of probably the most famous verse in the Bible, right? John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that the world wouldn't be condemned but that we should believe through him and be saved. Sometimes we say, and this is true, sometimes we say that we know for sure that God loves us in two ways, right? We know that God loves us because he tells us so in the Bible and he shows us so in the cross. God's proved his love for us. So, so, so truly, it, it, it's right that God is showing us, Jesus is showing us exactly how much God loves us in the cross. However, that can't be all that Jesus is doing on the cross. That can't even be the, the main thing that Jesus is doing on, on the cross. The, the primary thing that, that his death is meant to accomplish is not to show us how much God loves us, there's got to be something more to it than that, although that is true. Other people have suggested kind of almost the reverse. Instead of the cross showing us how much God loves us, they say the cross uh, shows us how much we're supposed to love God. The, the cross serves as an example to us. Jesus' death is an example to us of how, how uh, devoted he was to God, that he was willing to do whatever God called him to do, even to the point of giving up his, his own life. It's meant to be an example to us of how we're to love God and how we're to be completely devoted to him and how we should be willing to follow God no matter what the cost might be. And again, surely that's true, right? Surely, surely Jesus is an example to us. He does provide a perfect example of, of what it means to follow God and, and how we're to live our lives for him. In fact, when I, when I start thinking about that, I think of Hebrews chapter 12, where it tells us that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith that we should follow his example in, in fighting our own sin and in our own lives. I think of Hebrews chapter six, where uh, we're told that Jesus is the forerunner who has gone into God's presence before us and, and we're to follow him ha- there. But again, that can't be the only thing that's happening on the cross. It can't just be a, a display of God loving us. It can't just be a, an example of how much we're to love God. There, there's gotta be something else going on there as well. And, and, and in fact, there is. When, when Jesus cried out on the cross... He wasn't crying for Elijah, right? We know that because Mark translates what he said for us. He wasn't crying out for Elijah. He was asking God a question. And it was a a sincere question, it was a real question. He's asking God a question. He's asking God, why was he being forsaken? My God, my God, why are you, why have you forsaken me? And he truly was in that moment being forsaken. God the Father was forsaking the son Jesus. One commentator, Danny Aiken, he writes this. He says, the cry, when he cries out, why have you forsaken me? He says, that cry was not one of physical pain. It wasn't a cry of psychological confusion. It wasn't a dread of death. No, he said, it was the very cry of the Son of God who was now experiencing something he had never known in all of eternity. Separation from and forsakenness by God. The primary thing, the most important thing, the, the main thing that Jesus was doing on the cross, even though he's showing us how much God loves us, he's providing this example for. You, he's doing, doing these other things as well, but the primary thing, the main thing that Jesus is doing on the cross at the moment of his death was he, he was becoming a curse for us. He was becoming forsaken for us. God took all of the sins and all of the guilt that we would accrue in our lifetime and, and he laid it on the back of Jesus, our Savior. And he did it in such a way that legally we were no longer guilty. And legally Jesus became guilty for our sins. Think about that for a second. Think about all the sins that you've committed. Think about all the stuff that you would never want anyone else to know about. Jesus took that. Jesus took all of those and he claimed them for himself. At that moment on the cross, those sins were no longer yours. Those sins became your Savior. Those sins became Jesus's. He took the guilt of your sin. He took the guilt of my sin so that he could take the punishment of your sin. So that he could take the punishment of my sin. This, by the way, is why Jesus prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me. Remember that? Remember that? He's in the garden praying. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. But if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. He, he wasn't thinking about the cross. He, he, he wasn't thinking about the na- how much the nails were going to hurt, although that's true. He wasn't thinking about how bad it was going to be hanging there for hours until he finally suffocated to death, although that was true. He wasn't thinking about how bad the whipping was going to be and how bad the, the scourging and how bad the beatings and the, how, how much the crown of thorns were going to hurt, although all that was true. He wasn't thinking about how badly he would be humiliated. He wasn't thinking about the people that were going to be spitting on him and the people that would be mocking him, although all those things are true. When he cried, let this cup pass from me, he was looking at the wrath of God against our sins that would be poured out full strength on him. That's the cup that he prayed could be spared, the cup of the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. Another pastor, Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't just a rhetorical question. And the answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be forsaken by God. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. The cross does show us and prove to us how much God loves us. It does show us how we are to be committed to following God. But primarily, the main thing on the cross, Jesus is removing our sin from us and removing God's wrath and, and putting God's wrath on him so that we might be reconciled to God. The main thing Jesus is doing on the cross is taking our sins off of us and taking God's wrath from him so that we can be reconciled to God. This is why, this is why later on in verse 38, you look down there, this is why in verse 38 at the moment when Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple is torn in half from top to bottom. The, the curtain that, that's mentioned here hung at the entrance of the Holy of Holies or the most holy place in the in the temple, this is the part of the temple where, where god 's presence symbolically resided it 's where the ark of the covenant was it 's where uh, it 's where only certain people could go in to only do certain sacrifices at certain times of the year and There are accounts of priests and different people that went in at, at, at unauthorized times and were, and were killed for violating god 's presence. If we were to go into god 's presence, we could only enter into god 's presence through The mediator of a priest, only at certain times, only after certain ceremonial cleansings had been done. And yet when Jesus died, this curtain that that separated us from God was torn in half, ripped in half. And the reason is because Jesus' death removed the barrier of sin that separated us from God. Jesus' death removed the barrier of sin that kept us out of God's presence. He opened the way to fellowship between God and his people. And so the symbolic curtain was removed as well. Because Jesus was forsaken, because God forsook Jesus on the cross, we could be welcomed in. That's why we sing one of my favorite hymns. That's why we sing, Guilty, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God with Eve. full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Full atonement, can it be? It's it's too much to think of. Can it be that he took all of our sins? Can it be that he removed all of the father's wrath against us? Can it be that he took all of our judgment on himself? Hallelujah, What what a savior. They had a wrong understanding of what was happening on the cross, what, exactly what Jesus was doing. And then they also had a wrong motivation. There's a confusing part in this story. It's always been confusing to me at least. In verse 36, after, uh, after misunderstanding what Jesus had, had said and thinking he was calling for Elijah, we're told that someone offered Jesus a drink. We don't know who it was. We're told someone offered Jesus a drink. The drink's identified as, as sour wine, but it but leaves us three questions here. What exactly was the drink? What exactly is sour wine to begin with? Exactly who was it that offered it to him? And and why did they offer it? What was the reason for for offering it? And un, until now, until this week, I, I've kind of always thought that, that this drink was some type of, of kind of nasty tasting drink that that wasn't good, maybe maybe vinegar or, or something like that. And, and I've always thought that, that one of the Roman guards gave it to him, kind of in a way of mocking him, that Jesus was thirsty. And so in another way of mocking him, they gave him this drink that wasn't going to quench his thirst, this, this drink that was going to make him even even more thirsty than he was before. Uh, and, and I was thinking it was another way of, of, of torturing him. But I, I don't think that anymore. After, after looking at this passage in more detail this week, I don't think that's the, that's the case in, in, anymore. It says, it says here that someone gave him a drink of, of sour wine, okay? We don't know who gave it to him. We don't know if it was one of the Roman guards or if it was one of the Hebrew people that were around, one of the Jewish people that were there, uh, there at the cross standing around, but I think we can know what the, what the drink was, okay? It says it was sour wine, and, and, and there was a drink at that time that was common for lower class people to drink. It was less expensive than the, than the good wine. Think about, think about the wedding at Cana. Remember when they it says they saved the good wine for, for last, when Jesus turned the water to wine? There, there were different types of wine, and, and, and this, there, there was a drink called sour wine that was a, a less expensive drink. It wasn't as good as the good wine. It was for uh, uh, the lower class, and, and it was cheaper. And and the Roman gar- the Roman centurions, the Roman army people would 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 drink this. Um, and, 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 it, and it was a good drink. It, it was cheaper than the good wine, but it was still a good drink and it was a it was a good thirst quencher. In fact, one one commentary that I was reading kind of compared it to that day's Gatorade. And it was something that active people like like guards and soldiers and things like that would would drink to quench their, their thirst. But there's another there's another uh, there's another option too. Look back at, at verse 23 Chapter 15, verse 23. This is before before Jesus is on the cross. He's on his way to the cross. I'll actually start reading in verse 21. It says, They compelled a passerby named Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So they finished beating him. They put the crown on him. They've mocked him. Now they're taking him to be crucified. They've got this guy Simon carrying the cross for him. Verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And then verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Okay? Well, what is wine mixed with, with myrrh? It's this, this drink that they offered Jesus, and it was, a, it, it, it was a, an act of mercy. They often offered this drink to, to people that were being crucified as an act of, of mercy, and, and it had the effect of, of, of numbing some of the senses, it had the effect of, of, of making the misery of the cross a little bit more tolerable, okay? And they offered this to Jesus in verse 23. It says that he didn't take it at that point. And I wonder here on the cross now, as, as they're waiting for, for Elijah to show up and, and, and they offer this drink to Jesus, it's, it's identified as sour wine in, in this passage, but I wonder if it's this wine mixed with myrrh where they're giving it to him to, to numb some of his senses. And, and there might be a couple of reasons why they, why they, why they might do that. They, they might do it again as a as a torture device to kind of prolong the, the, the suffering, prolong the the crucifixion, make it last longer. If you don't feel, if you're kind of numb to some of the some of the, the pain there, then you can tolerate it longer. And so, so maybe that's kind of a tormenting thing, but maybe not. Maybe it is a, uh, a an act of mercy where they're taking some of the, are trying to take some of the pain away. But either way, I think their motivation here is because they, it tells us so. In, at the end of that verse, in verse. Um, verse 36, it says, they gave him, they, they filled the sponge with sour wine, they put it on a reed, they gave it to him to drink, and then they said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And so whether they're giving him this, this wine mixed with myrrh to kind of numb some of his senses, or whether they're giving him the sour wine uh, that the guards used to drink to, to kind of quench his thirst, the, the goal, I think, the motivation, I think, is the same. They're wanting, to, they're wanting to prolong this. They didn't want Jesus to die quite yet. They wanted to keep him alive long enough to see if Elijah really would show up, right? They, they think he's calling for Elijah. They give him this wine, and they say, let's wait, and let's see if he, if he shows up. Let's see if he comes. Let's see if he answers this, this perceived call that, that Jesus has cried out with. Probably out of, out of curiosity, but, but maybe out of genuineness to, uh, on the part of some of the Hebrew people, That were there they were thinking let's give him this drink and let's help him stay alive until elijah gets here and if he really is the messiah let's help him fulfill his mission by helping him last until elijah comes right they're still thinking elijah's got to come before the (laughs) messiah so if he really is the messiah let's help him complete what he's doing let's help him finish the mission by keeping him alive until elijah gets here of course the problem with that is as we saw before is that they couldn't, they couldn't help the Messiah fulfill his mission by helping him stay alive because the very mission he had come for was to die. The very purpose, the, the very reason he was on the cross was to die for his people's sins. And so in, in thinking they were helping, they were actually doing the exact opposite. They were trying to prolong his life when the whole purpose was for him to die. But again, as I was thinking through this this week, I think that, that sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we think that we're going to help Jesus. Sometimes we think that we're going to help to extend the boundaries of his kingdom. Sometimes we think we're going to help help to to, to spread the the message. But we try to do so by kind of polishing up or by by taming maybe some of the things that he said or did. Sometimes I think we can be embarrassed by some of the things that, that the Bible says. And so we try to make it a little more palatable to unbelievers try to maybe make it a little bit less offensive sometimes. I was watching a video on YouTube Friday. It was an interview with these two men. Uh, The first guy was Christopher Hitchens, who some of y'all probably know that name. He was a famous atheist, died a few years ago, wrote wrote several books. He was a writer for uh, Vanity Fair magazines and some other things. And he he was an atheist. And so he was there. And it was this other guy named Douglas Wilson. And Douglas Wilson is a pastor uh, up in Idaho. He's written several books also and and is a a pretty well-known pastor. And the two of these men, Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson, made a movie a few years ago. I think they wrote a book together first, and then they, and then they made a movie. They, they became friends over exchanging letters. Remember, one's an atheist, one's a Christian. And, and they became kind of friends through these letters, and they, they turned the letters, I think, I think is how the story goes, they turned the letters into a book, but then that became a movie. And there's this movie called Collision, and it's, uh, it's really a documentary of these two men uh, going to different college campuses and different venues and, and debating about whether or not God exists. And so you have Douglas Wilson, who's a Christian, you have Christopher Hitchens, who's an, who's an atheist, and they're, they're having these debates, and, and the documentary shows some of the debates, but it also shows the behind-the-scenes behind the stuff and just some of their friendly conversations and, and, and those kind of things. And, and part, of, um, part of promoting the, the, the movie was they went on these different talk shows in different places and, and did interviews together. And so I was watching this, this video on YouTube this, this past week and, and it was the two of them there um, and, and they, were, they were talking and in the middle of, of this particular interview um, after, after they had talked for a while, uh, the interviewer who, who happened to be at, uh, on this show, it was Joy, Joy Behar um, and, and she said, she turned to, to Douglas Wilson, the pastor, and she said, I mean, come on, I wrote this down. I want to quote exactly what she said. She said, I I mean, come on. You don't believe everything in the Bible, do you? I mean, you're too smart to believe everything, literally. Talking snakes and everything. And his answer was something to the effect of, I believe that this is God's word. And we would not be doing anyone any favors by watering it down to a version that's acceptable to unbelievers. We believe everything the Bible says. In another interview uh, with the Huffington Post about Christian sexual ethics a few years ago, Russell Moore, who's uh, uh, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for Southern Baptists, used to teach at Southern Seminary here, he was doing this interview, and they were asking him about, uh, about the, the Christian uh, view of, of sexual ethics. And here's what he said. He said, what I often tell people in churches and at Christian conferences uh, is about a conversation I had with a lesbian activist a secularist about a Christian view of sexuality. So he's talking to this lady who's not a Christian, she's a secularist, she's a lesbian, and and she said to him, I don't know anybody who believes the sorts of things that you people believe about marriage and sex, and it sounds incredibly strange to me. And Dr. Moore says, my response to her was to say yes, and we believe even stranger things than that. He says, we believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky one day on a horse. He says, we don't run from the strangeness of the message. Instead, we, we learn to, to articulate it. We learn to, to share it with clarity and, and with a mission. We, we embrace the strangeness to our culture of what the Bible says. And instead of that being something to push people away, we, we use that as something to bring people in. We don't deny what it says. We, we embrace what it says. Increasingly, if we if we hold to what the Bible says about sexuality and about sexual identity and what it says about Homosexuality and about abstinence until marriage and about monogamy within marriage, we're gonna be seen as prudes or bigots or backwards or, or out of touch. And the temptation is for us to say that the Bible is old fashioned, the temptation is to say that the Bible needs to be updated in order to reach unbelievers, the temptation is to say the Bible needs to be, uh, to be changed a little bit, tweaked here and there to make it more relevant to them so that it won't turn them away the temptation is to abandon some of the things that the Bible says. And there are people who claim to be followers of Jesus who have done that very thing. And, and not just about sexual ethics, but about all kinds of things. If we if we hold to what the Bible says about sin and about the fallenness of humanity and about our, our, our need for a savior that, that, that because we can't save ourselves, then, then we're going to be seen as negative. We're going to be seen as, as pessimistic. We're going to be seen as, as hurting people's self-esteem and and, and things like that. And, and the temptation is to, to, to change the message a little bit, to tweak the message a little bit in order to be more receptive to unbelievers. But here's the thing. We believe the Bible is God's word, right? We believe every bit of it is God's word, all of it. We also believe the part where God says it's through preaching the foolishness of his word the foolishness of the cross that people are saved and that his kingdom is advanced. It's foolish in the eyes of the world, and we who hold to it are seen as fools or sometimes seen as worse. But this shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Jesus told us that was going to happen. God told us it would be this way. So let's commit ourselves to believing every word, of the Bible, relying on it to transform the lives of people around us. The Bible itself says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's rely on that word. and Let's share that word with those around us. We can't, help, we can't help God accomplish his mission in a way that's different than his mission, right? They had a wrong understanding, they had a wrong motivation. But finally they had a right realization. At least the centurion did at the end. We find a single Roman centurion soldier or, or guard there and he comes to a right realization. And, and remember, this is the same man who in all likelihood just hours before was, was present and was taking part in beating Jesus and mocking Jesus And now he comes to a very different realization. One commentator, Craig Evans, he he writes this. He said, the Roman centurion confession of Jesus, what what he should only, I'm sorry, let me start that over. The Roman centurion confesses of Jesus what he should only confess of the Roman emperor. Caesar is not the son of God. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is. The mockery is now over. In calling Jesus the Son of God, the centurion has switched his allegiance from Caesar, the official Son of God, to Jesus, the real Son of God. What caused him to change his mind? Well, Mark says it was the way that Jesus died. He says, seeing, uh, he says, seeing the way, he says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, truly this man was the Son of God. John MacArthur writes this, really good. He says, The centurion had seen many crucified victims die, but none like Jesus. The strength he possessed at his death, as evidenced by his loud cry, was unheard of for a victim of crucifixion. That, coupled with the earthquake that coincided with Christ's death, convinced the centurion that Jesus was the Son of God. We know how people die during crucifixions, right? When someone's crucified, they take a long nail and they drive it through both their legs, cross their legs, drive it through both their legs into the wood. They drive a nail into their arms, into the wood, into their other arm, into the wood. And so they're standing on a nail, they got their arms on the wood, and they're hanging there, right? Right? We know how this works. They're hanging there, but that puts pressure on the chest so they can't breathe. And so then they stand up on the nail, but that hurts their feet. So they only do that for a certain amount of time. And then they fall back down, but then they can't breathe again. So then they stand up again as long as they can bear it. And then they fall down again. And, and it just keeps going like that until finally they suffocate. And at the end of their lives, as they're suffocating, they have no breath left. They're, they're weak and, they're, and they're, they, they, they have nothing left. And, and yet that's not how Jesus, that's not how Jesus died. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus says here in his gospel, but John does. In chapter 19 that that Austin read, he says, it's finished, or the plan has been completed, or the goal has been met, the goal has been reached, and then he died. Then he breathed his last. All that the prophets had said had been done. The weight of the sins of his people had been laid on him, and our salvation was being accomplished. It was finished. And so he breathed his last. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet come to that realization. Who's not yet come to the realization that the centurion did. I wonder if there's anyone here today who's not yet realized that Jesus really is who he said he is. Maybe you're here this morning and you have not yet seen Jesus for who he really is. I would advise you to do two things. First, I would say pray to God and, and ask God to remove the blinders covering your eyes that you can see clearly who Jesus is. And the second thing I would encourage you to do, I would encourage you to get into the Word, to read and read and read and read and read the Word. Study it. Ask questions of people if things you don't understand. Make it a point to be in attendance each time there's preaching to be done. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. I would encourage you to make it a point to hear as much as you possibly can. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you have realized that Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe you just realized that today or maybe you've realized that some time ago. Maybe God's already saved you, but maybe you've never professed that publicly before a group of people through baptism or through joining a church before, and if that's you, I would encourage you to, to do that. I would encourage you to consider, let today be the day the, the, that you make your belief known publicly. Let today be the day that we begin making plans to, to baptize you. Let today be the day that we begin the process of you becoming a member here. And finally, maybe you're a believer, and you have been a believer for some time. Maybe you've known that Jesus is who he says he is for many, many years. Maybe you made this profession a long time ago. But maybe you've allowed unconfessed and unrepented for sin to cause a barrier between you and God. I would encourage you to confess that sin this morning, to repent of your rebellion against God. Jesus died that we might have fellowship with God. Jesus died that he might reconcile us to the Father. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be received. I would encourage you to believe that, trust that, act on that this morning. Jesus died for us, his people. He died taking our curse, taking our sins on himself, being forsaken in our place so that we might be reconciled to God and welcomed into his presence. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for the truth of your word. Father, the truth of what you've done for us. God, it's, it, it's unbelievable that, that you would send your son to die for rebels. That you would send your, your only son to die for us who had turned away from you. Us who had sinned against you. And, and yet your word says that you did. And we know that you have. God, thank you seems to be such a, such a small response and, and yet and yet we say thank you. Father, I pray that your spirit would be working in us, that you would help us to make our lives uh, a thank you. Father, we thank you for our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.